Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Have been embarked on a section that has spelled out some of the blessings that come with persecution. And Peter has good reason to tell Christians in Asia Minor not to be surprised by persecution because he experienced it himself. Many in the early church, we read about it in the book of Acts, experienced hardship from religious and government authorities. Uh, We noted last week that Nero blamed Christians for a fire uh, that he started, uh, and subsequent Roman leaders followed with really brutal treatment to Christians within the uh, subsequent seasons. Uh, Peter points out that our suffering brings about a very unique, special fellowship with God. That means rich reward from Christ, a a closeness from Christ, sweet fellowship, and and we are also blessed with a present joy to those who depend upon Christ during those moments. The Holy Spirit initiates a unique relationship of sustenance and care that rests upon the believers. Pretty cool. And we talked last week that many put I think an overemphasis upon the Holy Spirit on a church stage and miss his work in suffering believers. Now the issue is not the presence of the Spirit's work on a stage, but prominence of the stage work over his work in hardship. And this brings us to our passage today in verses 15 through 19 of chapter 4. Let's take a look at it. Let's all stand. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous has scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Christian author Philip Yancey was in a horrible auto accident about 15 years ago that resulted in the C3 vertebra being pulverized. Nine weeks after his car accident, Yancey was to speak to Virginia Tech students in the wake of the tragic campus murders committed by Sung Hu Cho, who killed 32 people in 2007. And in the midst of the sermon, Yancey reflected on the accident and he offered these words of insight, putting pain in perspective. He said, I'm wearing a neck brace because I broke my neck in an auto accident. For the first few hours as I lay strapped to a bodyboard, medical workers refused to give me pain medication because they needed my response. The doctor kept probing, moving my limbs, asking, does this hurt? Do you feel that? The correct answer, the answer both he and I desperately wanted was, yes, it hurts, I can feel it. Each sensation gave proof that my spinal cord had not been severed. Pain offered proof of life, of connection, a sign that my body remained whole. Uh, In grief, love and pain converge. Sung Hu Cho 
felt no grief as he gunned down your classmates because he felt no love for them. You feel grief because you did have a connection. Some of you had closer ties to the victims, but all of you belonged to a body to which they belonged. When that body suffers, you suffer. Remember, as you cope with the pain, don't try and numb it. Instead, acknowledge it as a perception of life and love, end quote. Yancey's perspective echoes Peter's emphasis to enter into the fellowship of Christ in the midst of suffering. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Now, Peter has made a point throughout this book about a type of suffering that is related to following Christ and a type of suffering that is not. In 1 Peter 1.7, he says, there is a testing that results in the praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ, implying there's a kind of testing that doesn't. In 1 Peter 2.20, he talks about suffering justly for doing good versus suffering because you've sinned. In 1 Peter 3.17, he says, for it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And then we read in our passage today, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet as anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Now murder or being a thief are obviously specific sins. And it brings up the classic question that a lot of Christians love to argue, and that is, is a Christian capable of such sins? To which my retort is, do you know any Christians? I mean, for anyone to think that a born-again person is not capable of such sins is narrow in its perspective of humans and limiting in the scope of God's grace. Such behavior comes with consequences. Let's be clear about this. Uh, both in earth and heaven in terms of the loss of reward. David is a good example when you think of premeditated murder and adultery. The point is, suffering consequences for breaking the laws of society are not suffering for Jesus. Christians who find themselves in jail for breaking the law are not to gloat or take the role of a victim. I remember one pastor making a visit on somebody of his church who was in jail for some offense, and the pastor said to the guy, well, the guy was talking about how he was witnessing to people, and the pastor said, do me a favor, don't tell anybody you're a Christian. He was a repeat offender. So, you know, that, that's kind of the idea. Now, if, if murder and a thief doesn't cover it, then consider an evildoer. It has the idea of being a criminal. Now, such a person deserves to be punished. And Christians who are evildoers do not qualify for being blessed, as Peter is using it here, when they suffer. All right? They don't wear that label. Peter then inserts an interesting term when he says, meddlers will not be blessed, nor consider their suffering is for Jesus. Now, the word can be translated a busybody. When a person sticks their nose in someone else's business and they get called on the carpet for it, 
then you can't have the defense that you're getting picked on because you're following Jesus, right? You're suffering for the Lord. When a person meddles, their perspective and mouth is focusing on others. And the Christian in fellowship uh, with Christ is quick to acknowledge their own sin. And when we are busy tending our own hearts, we're far less infatuated with the sins of others. Uh, I mean, my, my devotional time is often, I certainly pray for others, but it's just dealing with the crud within my own perspectives and trying to adjust my own attitudes and allowing the Lord to touch upon those. Now, I don't think Peter was trying to be exhaustive here of particular sins that Christians involve themselves in. Uh, There are a lot of other negative behaviors, but the point is that these are to be distinguished from suffering on behalf of Jesus. He says, then, yeah, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in his name. Some Christians, as they follow Christ, are ashamed because of giving, getting negative attention, uh, whether it's ridicule or maybe falsely accused. Now, instead of being ashamed, we are to trust we will be blessed, is the point here. And this gives us confidence that we face the future with God's presence, God's promises. Others may think that suffering uh, means they did something wrong, and therefore they're going to reap the judgment of God. But the truth is, is that Christ suffered shame so we would not be marked by it. There is no need to count it as disgrace to suffer as a Christian. Now, shame is guilt that's run amok. Shame is a a state of humiliation due to sin. It's the feeling of rejection from both God and man. And it brings trauma to our relationships. We feel very alone with shame. Romans 10.11 makes the declaration that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. The Christian has a new identity of being a child of God transformed by Christ. Now, while others may humiliate you for your devotion to Christ, understand that God understands those feelings. Christ endured the shame of the cross for being crucified for the whole world to see And he did that so that shame would not mark us. He took our shame. In 1 Peter 2.6 it says, For it stands, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So I think there is certainly a future sense of that in the judgment and a present sense of that. We may be embarrassed by our sin. We may feel objective guilt because of our sin, but that's different than shame. God provides forgiveness, and that's an avenue for shame to no longer be our experience. Now, to bring clarity, 
Peter makes clear that the Christian will be judged, but this is a different judgment uh, than for the unbeliever. Experiencing the grace of God does not mean that God is not going to deal with our sin. Many Christians are confused about this. Uh, It does not mean that God will not exercise discipline with the Christian. Peter writes, for it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, normally when we hear the word judgment, what do we associate with that? You know, we, we put, you know, hell and God in the middle of all that. That's what we think when we think of judgment. But when God judges, all right, he is objectively evaluating people, all people, according to his standard, and then he applies the appropriate consequence. Now, he does this with Christians, and he does that with non-Christians with varying consequences. Unbelievers are judged with hell being a result. Believers are judged for discipline and loss or gain of reward. Both judged with different consequences. When Peter says God starts his judgment with the household of God, he's saying that the family of God is prioritized so they can be evaluated and refined. The author of Hebrews says this, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which we all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best for them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment of all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but it it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. The fruit of this judgment for the Christian is to increase our endurance and character refinement. The discipline marks us as being in the family of God. Janet and I, when we raised our four children, were responsible for our four children, not for children in other families. We were responsible to discipline them. We prioritized their behavior and applied appropriate consequences when they disobeyed. God does the same with his household. God's discipline brings fruit for our transformation. And we learn in time to appreciate this discipline, just like uh, your adult children will later, usually, thank you that you discipline them as children, even though at the time they hated the pain they felt when their seat of knowledge ached from the timber of training. God is perfect in his love for us, so his discipline will be justly applied as he attends to our disobedience. We cannot escape his loving discipline. A couple months ago, the pastor's group I'm in 
got a boat and went out on Table Rock Lake for the day. We had a wonderful time, but when the boat was at the fur furthest point from when we launched on the opposite side of the lake, the boat died. So we called to have the boat tugged into a dock and get it fixed. And by the way, that's far more expensive than having your car towed, okay? Um, the man who came to rescue us pulled alongside, took notice that he was looking at a half dozen men, and began to comment with very lewd and descriptive terms how disappointed he was that we were all men and not women. We just kind of looked at each other and smiled and waited for him to tie up the boat, and then his boat was about 30 or 40 feet ahead of ours, and we were tied up, and it took us about an hour to get back to where we needed to be. During that hour ride, he called Jeremy, one of our other pastors, uh, just to check on us, because Jeremy called him, so he had his number. Jeremy happened to mention that we were a group of pastors out for a morning ride. I could hear him on the phone profusely apologizing for his language, and he expressed his embarrassment. When we got back to the dock, his language miraculously changed as he shared with us the church that he attended and asked repeatedly for God to bless us. It's kind of funny the way people act when they find out you're a pastor. But God has a way of, you know, holding us accountable letting us know that he sees. And uh, uh, my guess is this man will greet boaters with a seemlier greeting. There are Old Testament examples of God's purpose in the judgment of his people. In Ezekiel 9 and Malachi 3, it speaks of this. We read in Malachi, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. The judgment of God for Christians is related to rewards and the refinement of character. Now, there's a phrase there, scarcely Saved. That's an interesting phrase. It has the meaning of saved with difficulty. Now, it doesn't imply that God is too weak to save us. It doesn't imply that God is unwilling to save us. Maybe Genesis 19, verses 15 through 26 could shed light. I'm not going to read it, but I think you know the story. Uh, that God sought to rescue Lot from Sodom before the city was destroyed. God was able, but Lot was unwilling. Lot lingered, argued with the angels, and finally had to be taken by the hand out of the city. Lot was saved with difficulty, and everything that he lived for went up in smoke. Lot was not always agreeable to God's way. He was not always agreeable to God's will. And that made his departure difficult. Many Christians fight 
against the will of God in specific areas of their life. Maybe money, maybe relationships, could be a horde of things. They hear the clear voice of God giving them direction, but they ignore it. They rebel against him, and God allows us to feel the consequences. And if God holds the righteous person, the Christian, accountable, how much more will he hold those who reject Christ and his gospel accountable? The Christian does not face judgment for punishment, but a judgment to determine rewards, refinement, discipline. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Notice the attachment of suffering to God's will. That implies what? I think it implies purpose to our suffering. I think it also implies a limit and a provision maintained by God, who is our loving Father. Believers are not experiencing hardship because of, you know, irresistible forces of blind fate, but it's according to God's will. And trust is a banking term. It means to deposit for safekeeping. Notice what we are depositing. It is our souls. The implication is that our souls are going to live long after this body that we're in now. We see this distinction by Jesus who reminds us that we are ultimately accountable to God and are not to fear those who can kill the body. In Matthew 10 it says, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Peter not only tells us what we are entrusting, but who we are entrusting. We are not holding to some nebulous saying, hoping to beat fate by proclaiming to somebody, hey, it's going to get better. No. We are instead trusting our faithful creator. As creator, he started our life on earth, and now he can be trusted with the end of it, and I might add, he can be trusted with everything in between. Consider for a minute the most difficult thing you have ever gone through in your life. You may, may be hard to think of just one. You might have several. It's going to be different for all of us. Take a second. Think about it. Get it firmly implanted. Might be marital strife. Might be a time when you were falsely accused. Might be a bankruptcy. Might be sickness. Now, most of us have had friends who have asked us during those times, how did you make it? How did you make it through? And I'm going to quote the words of Pastor Mark Dever here who says, honestly, I think of the throne at the end where it all ends up. Put the camera in tight there. 
No, it's going to end up good. And just start pulling it back slowly until it takes in the circumstances in my life. I may not understand how they're going to fit in, but I know it ends well. As long as I can be confident in that, I think I'm happy for whatever he wants to throw at me. I trust him. I think that's a part of entrusting our souls to our creator. Let's pray.